Futurists are looking at the 21st century. And all myths that are uh, authentic maintain a kind of dreamlike, surreal quality. Computers are taking over now. By the year 2001, man will travel about in pneumatic people tubes. It's time once again to step into the future. I had, if you ever was a devil, bought that any harness, better burn your man. I hear you, mama. Hey, hey. Okay, so this was August, late August. Pink light, golden leaves in the poplar trees, all that shit. I was back on the island, standing out on the big granite outcrop behind the house, and I was watching the bats come out of their roosts. And from somewhere behind me, out on the road, I heard this weird, sustained humming sound. And I turned to look, and there was this man riding a vehicle I'd never seen before. It had one wheel with a seat and handlebars, and it was going pretty fast. It was like 25, 30 miles an hour. And the guy was leaning over the handlebars, like leaning into his own speed. And he was wearing protective gear from head to foot. Helmet with a full face shield, black leather, like even his fingers were completely covered. You couldn't see an inch of him. And as he went flying past me on this weird one-wheeled humming vehicle, I thought he looked like a spaceman commuting home through the country dusk. Sometimes I have this feeling that I'm among the first people on this planet to realize that we have already crossed the threshold into a new era and that everything has already changed so much that we're soon going to be figuring our dates differently, like the way we began changing our dates when the cult of Christianity swept across the Middle East and the Mediterranean and Western Asia, forever altering the reality our ancestors had known before. This is Future Saint of a New Era. I'm Libby Grant. Today at our universities and research centers, in government and in business, the futurists are looking at the 21st century. Okay, Fox. They do not pretend to be prophets. They say the future cannot be predicted. It will be invented. Okay, Fox. All we have to do is plug into this wonderful information highway and our kids will be smart. Okay, All we have to do is get high-tech computers in the classroom and, and our students will learn so much more because they'll have an enjoyable time of it all. All we have to do is get a CD-ROM with an encyclopedia on it and, and, and our kids will have so much information. They'll, they'll, they'll do great on their, on their SAT exams. Okay, Fox. Hey, I'm not afraid of computers at all. They don't scare me. I use them all the time. I've used them for over 20 years, 30 years. It is not okay, computers fast. that bother me.
Okay, it's springtime, and I've just turned 18, and it's dark out. I don't know what time it is, but it's late enough for darkness, and I remember it was very, very dark. I snap into consciousness, and I'm driving up a road I immediately recognize as leading to Lake Kavanaugh, though it's pitch dark, and the only things I can see are the things that lie directly in the path of my headlights. Oh, and there's one other important detail about this story. It's pouring rain. I've never seen rain like this before, and it's all I can focus on as I slow down and stop my car in the middle of this empty road. Just like the power of the rain falling, and my windshield wipers can't keep up with it, and the way it's roaring on the roof of my car with this violent energy. I feel like I'm sitting on the inside of a drum. And then it occurs to me that I don't remember getting in my car, and I don't remember anything about the drive. So I went like 50 miles in this state, this weird detachment where I don't even remember being in control of my own body. I was so scared. I just stopped right there on the road and like hung on to the steering wheel and like shook for a while. I mean, it was so dangerous. I could have gotten in a wreck. I could have died. But I wasn't dead. I was on this road to Lake Kavanaugh, and I don't know, maybe a part of me felt like I'd been brought there? Anyway, after a while, the fear just kind of left me, and I felt curious, and the rain was even starting to let up. So I put my car in gear, and I kept driving up this road. So I knew by that time that I was heading for the cabin that belonged to my friend Jake and his family. That was the only place I ever went on Lake Kavanaugh, so like, what else would I be doing on that road except going to the cabin? And then as I drive, like, now that I have a real purpose in mind and I understand why I'm there, I start to remember more of what had happened earlier that night. It's something I wish I could talk about on this podcast, but it's not, it's not safe for me to do that, unfortunately. So there are some details about my life that I will keep to myself for now. But I started remembering earlier that night and I... I don't know, I just feel so angry and sad. And I just want it to be the future already because I know, I absolutely know to the center of my being that I'm going to love my life someday. Like someday I'm going to love my life more than I hate my life now. But you know, back then it just felt like the future was so far off. And sometimes it was really, really hard to convince myself to keep believing in it. Anyway, as I head for the cabin, the road dips down into this little depression in the forest. And I hit the brakes for the second time because at the lowest point of the road, right between these two heavily forested slopes, the ground is moving. And at first it looks to me like the roadway itself is, like, boiling? Like there's this turbulent, churning quality in this gray-green mass right in front of me. And as I sit there staring for what was probably a lot longer than it needed to be, I finally realize that I'm looking at thousands and thousands of frogs. This is more frogs than I have ever seen in my life. More frogs than I thought could exist in the entire forest. And they're migrating across the road from one giant pool of rainwater to another. And I roll down the window of my car, and I sit there for a long time 
watching this river of life flow past me. And after a while, I back my car up the slope, because there's no way I'm going to drive through the frogs, and I find a place where I can turn the car around, and I turn it, and I drive back home. Okay, later. Several weeks later. It's summer now, but it's late again, and I've been driving around town all night, and this time I remember <laughs> the driving part. But I am driving at night because of the same exact reason as before. And I stop at the pet store where I work at the time, though it's closed. You know, it was like 11 midnight, I don't know, but it was late. The store was definitely closed. But I knew there was uh, a payphone on the wall outside. And I pull up and I, you know, get out and go to the payphone to call someone. I don't remember who I called and I don't remember why. Uh, I'll be honest, it's 50-50 odds that I was either trying to find a friend who would allow me to sleep on their couch for a few days, or it was a booty call. Just being honest. But while I'm talking on the phone, I notice something stuck to the bumper of my old black sob. Something ragged and hard and thin. And after I hang up the phone, I go over and take hold of the thing and try to pull it off my car. It feels frayed with sharp edges. And I think at first that it's a piece of that steel cable, you know, that's become like stuck somehow to the bumper. Like maybe it's magnetized or something. But then I finally pull hard enough to wrench this thing away. And I open my hand and I realize it's the desiccated body of a frog with its limbs stretched out and its face torn away. I don't know. I don't know what the point of this story is. I don't know what it means in this context, except sometimes strange things happen to you on the road and they stick with you for your whole lifetime. Suppose nature gave a war and everybody came. The snakes, the birds, the lizards and frogs. And suppose that the polluters, the species on Earth called man, were the enemy in that war. Well, I just got back from Colorado yesterday, and I had spent nine days or so in the mountains, and then I bombed across America and did 1,100 miles in two days, stopping in Kansas to see my grandmother. And uh, I realize, dear Libby, that I am not quite the road tripper that I once was. I am, I am easily tired now, or more susceptible to being tired now. And it um, was sort of a sad realization that I once thought I could drive from San Diego to Portland, Maine. And uh, I can't, can't do it. I just can't. Don't ask me to, I can't. This is my friend Ben Leroy. He's an editor, a writer, a podcaster, the founder of Collaborist.org, which is an online resource where writers can find editors, coaches, advice with their query letters, just about everything new writers need to make their first steps into the publishing world. And Ben's the best person I can think of to guide writers in that difficult early stage of their careers because he is a former publisher himself. He founded two publishing companies, Bleak House Books and Tyrus Books, the latter of which was sold to Simon & Schuster. This guy knows the publishing world inside and out, and he also happens to be one of the coolest people I know. Ben's the kind of guy you want to just kick back and have a long conversation with. That's exactly what I did recently, and our talk went to some interesting places. Each year losing. If you don't have somebody to switch off with, it's really tough. It takes it out of you to like be alert for that long. And I made this realization. 
and it's something like we all had this evidence for a long time but i like it became concrete to me yesterday am radio is probably like sneakily responsible for the death of this country oh without a doubt ben without a doubt it's just all like incendiary right-wing and religious programming yes just any up and down the dial doesn't matter I lived an interesting childhood. <laughs> One half of my family, super, super Mormon, mega conservative, living in the middle of nowhere in Idaho. The other half of my family, super liberal, not Mormon, living in Seattle. So I spent the school years in Seattle with my liberal family, and every summer, court mandated, <laughs> I had to go back and live with the super conservative side of my family in the middle of nowhere where the only entertainment we had was PBS and AM talk radio in the 90s. And it was all Rush Limbaugh all the time. And it poisoned my entire family. It was disgusting. I am glad that Rush Limbaugh was not one of the options on the radio, but I did notice that many of his disciples and then their disciples and then their less gifted counterparts and further and further, they all, they all have their own channel. And I will also point out FM radio is absolute and total garbage as well. And it does not sound, I, I don't feel like I'm just being that old dude who's like kids today in their music. Like it just, it, it's all trash. It's all garbage. And I probably have to deal with some existential questions when the oldie station is playing Don Henley's Boys of Summer. And I'm like, oh, that's an oldie now. Okay, I got to update my records. Oh, yeah. Uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit by Nirvana is an oldie now. Oh, that hurts. It does. That hurts. It really does. Examine with us secular rock music from a Christian perspective. How about a group like ACDC, Highway to Hell? We hope these guys aren't on the highway to hell. Were you ever, were you a big road tripper previously in your younger years? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've been to all 50 states. I used to do things like, uh, I can remember driving from Mobile, Alabama, straight to my hometown in Madison, Wisconsin, with no no staying over anywhere, just from the Gulf of Mexico to Madison. Yeah, I, I was a legendary road tripper in my youth, and so much of it was done completely by myself. There have been a few monumental trips that involved a co-pilot or another driver, but for the most part, just driving. And I had only one sort of negative incident about that. I was dating a woman who had a job in Maine, and I drove from Madison to Chicago, picked her up in Cincinnati, and then we drove to Maine. And then a friend of mine flew out to Maine and met me there for the drive back. And I had already been driving for like forever. And then I got in the car and we started driving from Maine and we made a couple of stops along the way. And then sometime in central Ohio along Interstate 90, it was like three o'clock in the morning and I was seeing, and I'm sure that other people have experienced this, but there would be a semi and it would hit its brake lights and I'd be like, there is a fucking UFO landing right on the road right now. And like, I would be so like, couldn't couldn't grasp what was going on. So we stopped and I slept for like three hours and I'm like, yeah, I'm good to go. And then we finished the drive to Chicago. I dropped my friend off. I had lunch with an ex-girlfriend and she was like, you look really tired. Are you going to be able to drive back to Madison? 
And I was like, yeah, I'll either drive or I'll take an ambulance. And then she dropped me off at my car and I drove like 30 feet, ran a red light and just smashed into a, a car. And then I was like, yeah, yeah. So that was the one time where I pushed too far and there were consequences. Many other times it was just like get a good night's sleep somewhere or be late somewhere. But that's the only time I've had real consequences. I love road trips. Oh my God. It's my favorite thing in the world. And I love it when there's like no planned destination or like vaguely planned, but the way you get there is really wiggly. God, I love that. I used to do that all the time with my friends. We would, you know, it would be some weekend that we would all have off together and we'd be like, let's just like drive to Leavenworth across the mountains, you know, and just see what happens. Come back. God, it was great. It's great fucking fun. I was in Leavenworth for Christmas time, and that's a special Christmas place. It is. Yeah, when you get the whole, the village, and you kind of feel transported. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. What's the weirdest thing you ever saw on a road trip? <laughs> uh, the standard cocktail party story of that is my friend Roxy and I. You have seen a picture of Roxy. Roxy's dad is Duke Erickson from Garbage. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Roxy and I were on a road trip across the country and we went to the Grand Canyon and some for some reason we went to the Grand Canyon, the northeast corner of the Grand Canyon at sunset. And then when we left, we were totally in the middle of nowhere and it was dark. And our goal, we knew, was to make it to Taos, New Mexico. Oh, yeah. And we got to, I'd have to look at a map right now, but we got to a gas station somewhere. And the options the options were we could go way south on the interstate, then east, and then way north to get to Taos. Or, and this was the choice we made, we decided to drive across reservation in the middle of the night, like all through Arizona. And before we got on like the reservation roads, this woman at this gas station was like, if something happens to your car, don't get out because snakes go to the road at night to stay warm. And we were like, uh, okay. And when we turned on to the road that we were using to cut across, there was like almost immediately there was no cell signal and there was no radio signal. I would have even taken Rush Limbaugh at that point or Art <laughs> Bell because it was like midnight. And we were driving and then all of a sudden there was like all of these jackrabbits going across the road and there were snakes and there were mice and there was just all of these like animals going across the road and we hit something. I don't remember what it was. Um, but I remember feeling like really guilty and it was already at this point like past midnight. So you're already not in your best place. But we were driving and we're driving and we like there were just all these optical illusions where it looked like the road just ended and I would just slam on my brakes. I'd be like, are we gonna go off a cliff? And then it'd be like, no, there's there's a road here, but there were no lights. There was there was and you had probably a lot more experience with this when you were in Nowheresville, Idaho, but at night, when there's like a full palette of stars, it is overwhelming to me. Like it provokes in me like nausea. Cause it's like, whoa, we are so insignificant and we are so tiny. Yes, yeah. And that's what it was like that night. And we drove up this hill and as we were coming down the hill, there were cows just standing in the middle of the road. And like we had to go around the cows. And then at one point there were horses and the horses were running alongside the car. 
if I would have been a little bit braver, I could have rolled down the window and like pet the horse while I was driving. And Roxy, Roxy was like, I need to go to sleep. And I was like, okay. But it was like a three hour drive and it was white knuckle the whole way. And we were driving and Roxy went to sleep and I was like, I would really love just like an 80 station. I just want some grounding thing for me where I feel like it's familiar because everything felt unfamiliar. And then I was like, you know what? Instead, I think I'm going to put on, I don't know if you're familiar with the band Mr. Bungle, but I was like, I'm going to put on Mr. Bungle's Disco Volante, which is, anyone who's listening to this is like, oh yeah, that was a bad choice. It's like if music was an acid trip, and um, I just put that on because I just steered into the whole idea of like, this is just going to be weird. And we kept driving, and it kept just never being comfortable. And then it towards the end of before we uh, got off that road, there was a person lying face down in a ditch or close to the ditch side of the road. And I was remembering what the woman at the gas station said. It was three o'clock in the morning. We had no room in our car. We had no, no cell phone service, no anything. And I kept driving and Roxy's like, we have to stop. And I was like, no, he was good. He was fixing something. He had a screwdriver, I think I saw. Like, no, it's okay. Oh, no. And like, now I'm like, I'd probably stop. But at the time, I just remember being like, I am so disoriented. It's three o'clock in the morning. What's going on here? I, I do know that I haven't seen any other human beings, really. No one driving in the opposite direction or anything like that. Yeah, if I had to do it all over again, then probably stop just because I think I've changed as a human being. But at the same time, like I don't really fault myself for not stopping. But yeah, that was probably, I think that's probably the most like yeah. memorable, sort of singularly noteworthy road trip. There's been plenty of like what you were talking about with taking the wiggly route somewhere and you don't know exactly how you're going to get somewhere. You have a general idea of where you're going, but that allows you to see all of the roadside attraction signs that pop up and you're like, world's largest mousetrap? Yeah, I guess. Like I've never seen that before and it's here, so I guess. Yeah, I like that. I, I love taking the, the unexpected path and seeing the unexpected sights, you know? I mean, that's that's kind of the way I, I go through life is I just, I have a general destination in mind and I'm just sort of barging along whatever whatever path will get me a little bit closer to it and just seeing what happens. <laughs> yeah, I've definitely had a lot of discoveries that have stuck with me by incorporating that as a guiding philosophy on road trips. Yeah, it's great. Oh, it makes me miss the Southwest though. You're talking about all the animals at night. Like the desert is fucking incredible i love it so much it comes to life at night like there's so much life in it that you just can't appreciate until you're out there at night Absolutely. and it's just like this explosion around you it's incredible i love deserts yeah and domestically it's one of our wildest frontiers where your human currency doesn't spend all that well if you're in the middle of of the desert and you have no water or food or you run across animals that aren't afraid of you it's it's a tough place to be a human yeah it's that makes you feel insignificant too like the stars do you know like i know that feeling so well yeah when i first moved out to san juan island after living in cities for like my entire adult life i couldn't sleep at night like i could not i had this overwhelming anxiety at night and i couldn't figure out what the hell it was for the longest time and then i realized there was just like no human stuff anywhere around me except for my own house and then like immediately outside my house it was this open 
space with trees and deer walking past my window and looking in at me like I was an animal in a zoo exhibit, right? And, and just this like sweep of land out to the water and then Mount Baker out there beyond it. And you just couldn't see human stuff. Yeah. There was no light pollution. There was no sound other than nature and fucking stars, so many stars. And I remember like sitting out in my yard and looking up and just feeling like, I'm going to fall off the planet into this incredible vastness of space. Like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) Yeah, I'm getting anxious. I'm getting anxious with you just talking about it. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. In a good way. It's just, it is so visceral and it is so to our core, our DNA. It it lets you know you are just the smallest speck. You aren't even a speck. Like a speck is... Generous. You're not even a quark. You're just, yeah. Yeah, it's good to be reminded of that shit, though, because I think we forget it too often, you know? We absolutely do. Speaking of things that make you feel insignificant and maybe a little weird, I did just move to the city, to Victoria, D.C. Love it here. But as soon as we arrived, like, we pulled up in our van and two of the neighbors came out to meet us. So we're we're living now in this beautiful mansion built by Samuel McClure, built in 1915, and it's been broken up into four apartments. So we're renting one of the apartments in this old, old, cool, style mansion. Two of our neighbors came running out to meet us. They were very friendly. And both of them said, like, as soon as they got a chance to talk to us alone, you know this place is haunted, right? (laughs) Just, like, very direct. Like, just so you know, it's haunted as fuck here. (laughs) So I was like, okay, I mean... I'm down for anything. I'll have a ghost roommate. And then, you know, we moved in and we were unpacking and I was like, whatever. Like, you know, I believe in spiritual woo stuff, but also like, I've never seen a ghost. I think it's just people see things and attribute it to, they attribute whatever they saw to, to something spooky when there's some mundane explanation for it, you know? Absolutely. But then I drove Paul back uh, down to the ferry landing so he could go do some work on our house on San Juan Island. I was here alone. Like my first night alone, I'm cooking dinner and I felt Paul walk past me. You're like, you know that feeling you have when a person walks by you? It's very real. Your whole body like kicks into sensory awareness. And I was like, oh, it's Paul. And then I turned to look, shadow, five or six feet from me, like not attached to anything that just went poof and vanished. And I was like, I just... I just saw a fucking ghost. <laughs> like, what was your mundane explanation for that one, Libby? Yeah, I didn't have one. I was just like, okay, I guess there's a ghost here. <laughs> no, no malevolence. No, no bad feelings. No bad energy. No, not at all. It didn't even feel like it was aware of me. It was like somebody walking past you in the grocery store who doesn't even really register that you're there. You know, just a person passed me and went poof in front of my eyes and vanished. And I was like, well, that was fucking weird. <laughs> Yeah, I I think the quicker you can make peace with that happening and not worry about the mundane versus the non-mundane explanation, the cooler stories you're going to get out of that. I agree. And I also feel like uh, I'm already pretty good at, at making peace with weird shit that happens in my life and just being okay with the unknowns. So I think I maybe was already a little bit primed to just not be freaked out by that. Like as soon as I told my friends, I was like, I think I just saw the ghost. They were all like, oh my god, oh, sage it. I was like, why? Yeah. It didn't bother me. It was just a little startling and then it was gone and it didn't do anything bad so like what's to be afraid of yeah (laughs) i'm with you have you ever seen anything like that i've experienced all kinds of things i i'm right now not able to think of like a visual except yes um i'm i'm hyper open to the fact that as humans we don't understand the world around us and that there are senses well beyond the five that we talk about 
and that there are definitely times where we sense things and don't have any explanation. It is just, it is something that is sensed, but not understood in any way. And there's no way to like scientifically test it. There's no way to like poke it. There's no way to listen to it. It just existed. And some more complicated part of our brain and the machinery inside of us recognized it as something. And our brain, the part of the brain that we're using, couldn't catch up to it. I think that's probably the most accurate way of describing that I've ever heard anyone give. (laughs) I think you're right, and I agree with you on all of that. I've had some weird shit happen to me in my life that I just can't explain. I've sensed things that later turned out to really happen, like in real life, you know, all kinds of weird shit has happened to me, and I just, I think the only way to explain it is that reality is just bigger and weirder than we can understand. There's more to it. Yeah, I look at it as something called um, the knowledge not yet possessed, and it's like there are intricacies and nuances about what goes on on Neptune that we don't know because we don't have the ability to sit there and observe it. We don't know we don't know it. Right. It's that whole thing about it's not what you don't know, it's what you don't know you don't know. And for me, the amount of accumulated knowledge that not only humans, even if you took every human who's ever known anything and you preserved yeah. their their memories and what they learned and what they understood, and you take the whole of the animal kingdom that has ever existed, including extinct animals, if you combined all of the knowledge contained therein, it, like us against a starry palette of the sky, we're so insignificant. The, com- the total what we know of the universe is so small And it's really just serving as functional software for how to exist now in the 21st century, however we want to find that four and a half billion years after the planet showed up. It's, it's like the most basic. It's like we're, we're running Windows 95. Like we're, we're just, we're, we don't even have a computer actually. The idea of a computer hasn't even been thought of. You familiar with a guy named Terrence McKenna? Of course I'm familiar with Terrence. (laughs) Yeah. Hold on, I'm going to turn my light on. Okay. People, I'm familiar with Terrence McKenna. <laughs> that didn't really help, but it kind of helped. Watch this, watch this. Hold on before you do that. Watch this. <gasps> oh my God. He just pointed dramatically and a red light turned on behind him. But then because before it was... <laughs> it was blue. Yeah. <laughs> One of the ideas that Terrence McKenna circles back to a lot in many of his lectures is... Uh, The concept that he feels that there is an overmind guiding human evolution, or he felt, he's dead now, sorry, but he felt that there was an overmind consciously and very intentionally guiding human evolution to the point that humans would create non-biological bodies that could carry a mind, could carry a consciousness beyond planet Earth and into the stars. In other words, he, he felt that the planet itself had its own discrete consciousness and created humanity as a tool to get its mind away from this rock so that it, the, the mind of, of Gaia, of Earth, could travel elsewhere and find other homes and spread across the universe the way, say, a mushroom spreads its spores into many different environments. Absolutely. I always thought that was a fascinating concept. And, and of course, what he was positing is, is that humanity has been shaped to the point where we are biological bodies that are capable of creating AI, basically artificial intelligence that can live inside, you know, not carbon, but silicone and can be sent via computer chips elsewhere. 
So I always found that concept so fascinating just to think about like, what if, you know, what if there is some overmind that has like created us as these little tools for its use and like it just happened that we also picked up consciousness along the way. Like we are these little AI bots that <laughs> that accidentally well, yeah. became conscious. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even if you just think about like how we understand evolution and really the physical characteristics of evolution are the ones that we can look at, like the, the benefit of having a thumb and what that does. But like, what does spiritual evolution look like? What does conscious evolution look like? And what if all of the time spent worrying about the physical body is misspent time for our larger purpose, if our larger purpose is to like you were just talking about and like McKenna was saying, be able to go outside of our existing shell and atmosphere. Because even if you've got like the six pack abs and you're like, you're, you're in like total fitness, like your body is gonna die. This, this husk is being shed. How do we perpetuate consciousness? How do we perpetuate experience? And yeah, in some ways we are prototypical rudimentary AI vessels. We're limited by the constraints of things like gravity and the need for oxygen. But what if we didn't? What if we didn't have those problems? And then who's out there to receive it? It's oh, endlessly fascinating to me. I could sit and think about this shit for hours and hours. I wish I could. I wish it was my job to just sit around and like, well, I guess I would be a philosopher then. I would probably be a terrible philosopher. <laughs> Well, you would be joining a club and I would induct you into that. I I majored in English and philosophy in college, so a double major. Nice. And yeah, that's how you get trained to be a publisher. Um, you talking about, I wish this was my job. I wish I could do this all day and just think about this. In some ways, it is your job and it is what you do. And the payoff, the salary, the royalties aren't part of the existing economy because the currency is entirely something else. It's eternal existence throughout the cosmos, which is a payment that renders dollars and cents inconsequential to the point of absurdity. You have gobsmacked me. <laughs> That's a, yeah, wow, what a way to think about it. I do feel like, I do feel like writing or creating um, any other kind of art that's really intended to be art, right? That's like, I'm trying to make capital A art. I do feel like there is some element to artfully made things to where you can sense that the creator was trying to, trying to take the essence of a thing that happened inside their electrified goo inside their skull, inside their brain, and transmit it so that it also happens inside someone else's mind. I feel like that's what art is, is this attempt to like telepathically share an experience. And the best way, the closest we can come to that, as far as we know, <laughs> with our current technologies and understanding of reality, is to make art. I don't know. What do you think? I'm really fascinated by this of late, particularly, because I kind of got into this idea, if you read a book that's been translated, right. what you are relying on is somebody else's interpretation of what the text says and then puts it in a language that you understand. So you lose something in translation, like that is the saying. But I started thinking about how the act of writing itself is an act of translation. 
it's the translation between the brain and the idea and yeah. the fullness. And you know this, like I know this from working on a book, the story is fuller and more complete in our head, but it's also fleeting. And so if we try to grab at the fullness of the whole story, we'll miss. And then we just have to quick scramble to write down the pieces that we do have. But there's something lost between the thought and the commitment to language, the actual putting it down in language. And so when you're talking about what would it be like to be able to telepathically take our experience and hand it over to somebody else, that this is the highest purpose of writing a book. I agree with that. I agree that that is the purpose of the human condition is like, here's all the knowledge I have. Let me put it with all of the knowledge you have so that we can have between the two of us a combined and fuller understanding of the universe. But we haven't gotten to a place where we can do that telepathically and we have to use imprecise and imperfect instruments, namely a pen type whatever, to get the story to somebody else. And then it's like we are always on their shoulder on some level, consciously or subconsciously saying, do you get it? Do you completely understand what I mean? Like this was something very important to me and I've tried to give this story to you, but like, did you fully get it? And can I stop for one second and just tell you this other thing that I forgot to write down, but now occurs to me to be very important and it would totally change your understanding of everything. <laughs> like that's the mess. Yeah. I think that our goal should be, how do we telepathically? How do we remove as many layers between the experience and the reporting of the experience? I agree with you. I think it could be critically important to be able to transmit big ideas that quickly and that accurately. I think we need to make people feel more urgency about solving some of the problems that the world is facing and maybe story transmitted in the right way is the way to do that. I mean, story has incredible power over the human mind. Yeah. As far as we know, we're the only animals who tell stories to our knowledge. So that's unique to us. Like that, that pretty much is us. We're storytelling animals. So yeah, I mean, story can be what saves us. But what if I told you the story of everything was already inside us and that it was encoded in our DNA? And what we're doing is not creating, but we are scraping at the plaque that covers the story inside of us. So we're learning these things as we go. And there is story embedded in our DNA and that really it's a matter of how do we access it that is the biggest question. Siempre me atrajo a mí cosas que me llamaron la atención y que yo no entendía. Entonces el tarot me atrajo, era tan raro el tarot. I have frequently, I, I end up um, channeling a lot of stuff. If you ever, and, and you have, but if you've ever like noticed things that I'm sometimes putting on Twitter, they may sound nonsensical, but the name, the place, the phrases, the concepts come from somewhere that is not an obvious external stimuli. All of a sudden a name will pop into my head. All of a sudden a place will pop into my head or a date will pop into my head. It is without context and it is essentially without meaning. It happens, I document it, I write it down, I do a voice memo. I have 
hundreds of voice memos. I have just hundreds of hours of voice memos of me just channeling stuff. And I, I have to ask, where is that coming from? Where is that information coming from and what does it mean? And if I'm not getting it obviously from any of my five senses that I am more or less in control of relative to any other ones, then where is it coming from? And I think to myself, well, if I didn't get it from outside, then does it follow that it must come from inside? And if it's coming from inside, then what am I perceiving? Hmm. I like to think that inside us somewhere, if we could access it, there is the knowledge of everything that was before, the knowledge of everything that come, everything that is, ever, will be. It's all there. It's just how do we access it? And how do we link up to a bigger community? How do we how do we level up to whatever whatever is next? How do we take our shared understanding of the universe and couple it with the sentient creatures on some star two hundred million light years away? I just have to figure out how to launch that rocket. That rocket that can travel two hundred million light years immediately. If that exists, how do I do that? And how do I show up in the spirit of peace and love and cooperation to whatever's on that star to be like, okay, now there are two of us. How many other things are there out in the universe for us to collect? And then if I'm giving a TED Talk, that to me is the concept of God, is that when all knowledge is reassembled and that there is one sole organism that is made up of an infinite amount of smaller organisms, but that now all knowledge is complete. Now there is no longer any knowledge not possessed. All knowledge is had. That's God. That is the manifestation of God. And to that extent, to that point, I am as much God as you are God as the sentient being on the star is God. We are all fractional parts of God. Mormonism teaches that trillions of planets scattered throughout the cosmos are ruled by countless gods who once were human like us. They say that long ago on one of these planets, to an unidentified god and one of his goddess wives, a spirit child named Elohim was conceived. I mean, you took the words right out of my mouth. These are thoughts I have also had. In fact, just last night, I was walking around the neighborhood thinking very much the same thing and kind of musing on that similar idea. And uh, I'm with you on that. I think we, I think everything that exists is literally, literally, not metaphorically, one, one thing, one conscious thing that everything is conscious. My fucking, this is conscious. My mouse is conscious. My micro, like this is all conscious and it's all this body of God. And that somehow we've had to fragment ourselves into innumerable individuals so that we can know all. Cause like in order to know all, we must experience all. Like we have to become everything, every Ben Leroy, every Libby Grant, every whoever is listening to this. And yeah, it's, uh, it's mind blowing to think about. And yet also when you think about it honestly enough and fearlessly enough, I feel like it's the only conclusion any reasonable person can come to. Yeah. It's that fearlessly part, and it's the ego part. Like, it's scary to, to think of it that way. There's a quote, and I'm paraphrasing it, and I'm going to probably butcher it a little bit, but essentially it goes something like, a young student asked, Master, what is the ocean? And the master replied, it is everything between the shores. And then the young student said, then when I'm swimming, am I not to the ocean? And 
that is when you were just talking about all of the things that are sentient in your life. It's like, if we zoom out far enough, what is the distinction between Libby and the brush? There isn't one. You're not even perceived. You become so small that you're not even perceived. You become a pixel. Everything in your life is just a pixel. We're a collection of cells. And each one of those cells is further divided. Yeah, we're, yeah. what are we? Kind of nothing. And I can, I suppose I can understand why that scares some people. Like why that makes people panic and feel like, you know, reel away from that idea. I, I guess I can understand feeling afraid of that, but it just fills me with a sense of awe. Like how fucking crazy is all this? Look at this. There's something where there should be nothing. Like we know that we are real in some sense because we do perceive ourselves and like the consciousness perceives us. I'm really here. And yet I'm nothing at the same time. It's so cool. The obsession with legacy is really hard for people to get over, and that's such an ego-based thing. We want people to know that we existed. We want people to know we were on Earth, and that's a very human thing. I get it. I'm no different. I, I want people to know that I exist and that I existed. But if you cling to that and you think about time and space and you think about 66 million years ago there were dinosaurs and now there aren't, and you think about what 66 million years ago was, and you think of the whole of recorded human history, actual like written history, and it only being 5,000 years old, that's overwhelming. We realize that for all of our breast beating and and yelping into the void, no one's going to remember this incarnation except as part of a larger collection of knowledge of all things. But it'll be no more, no less prominent than any other thing that occurred. Each second is its own mountain. And yet everything that happens to each of us as individuals is so central, so important to us. You know, it it is really hard to wrap your head around that, that thought of just being a pixel in one huge picture. But amazing. I love that shit. I love mysteries. Yeah, you and me both. (laughs) That's why you kind of studied philosophy. How did you end up... um getting into writing were you writing as a little kid like me were you just always wanting to tell stories yeah yeah i i loved stories um from a really young age because my dad would just constantly involve me in stories like he was just he was a storyteller too um he was a painter but i would just sit and watch him paint when i was a tiny little kid and he would just narrate these fanciful stories off the top of his head as he was going so um i was just really in love with story from a young age it was just like it was how i had fun and then when i was about eight years old old, I read Watership Down for the first time and it occurred to me, I was like, ping, light bulb. I was like, oh, someone paid Richard Adams to write this book, which, you know, now I know is not really the way it worked out. (laughs) He wrote it first and eventually he sold it. But I just decided in that moment, I was like, I'm going to write books. And I specifically thought when I was eight that I was going to write animal novels. Um, Have not, I still have not written an animal novel, but uh, I do write books now. So... (laughs) I've got I've got a dear friend of mine who's a writer who was just reading Watership Down and is working on an animal novel and I don't take it as a coincidence that you just brought that up and I had that conversation within the last a very a very near time ago I had a conversation that was very much in line with what you were just talking about that's not a coincidence. No, no, no. It's it's a synchronicity. Yeah. Those things have meaning. They do. Yeah, but I um 
I never stopped believing from from that moment that I was gonna do this someday. So I made it happen, man. I pff, the deck was stacked against me. <laughs> the most egregious of possible ways. Like, everywhere I've turned still, like, I keep getting smacked in the head and pushed back down the rungs every time I try to climb a little higher, and it's so fucking frustrating. But I know where I'm going, and I know I'm gonna get there, because I always do. <laughs> so I'm just gonna keep, keep kicking on the windows until one of them breaks, and eventually I'm gonna crawl in and grab my goal. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Yep. Sometimes I worry that maybe you're getting so frustrated you just want to throw the pen down completely and storm out of the room. So I'm glad to hear that the truest, highest version of yourself says, no, I'm going to keep going and I'm going to kick in the glass and get the thing that I'm looking for. Yeah, I do feel really frustrated often. It's, as you know, having been on the publisher side of things, it's a frustrating job. Absolutely. It's, it's often just hard and heartbreaking. That's the thing I think a lot of people who aspire to have my job, to write books, to write novels for a living, I don't think they are prepared for how hard it can be. Because it is, it has to be so mercenary if you're going to make a living from it. Like, you have to be willing to write the stuff that's going to sell, which is not necessarily the stuff you want to be writing. Mm -hmm. And that's my case. And I, I'm able to compartmentalize it a little bit by using, by working with a pen name so I have my Olivia Hawker stuff. And I'm very proud of all those books too, and they've done well, and most of them, <laughs> not all of them. And they found a, an audience that loves them, and I'm incredibly grateful for that. And also, it's not where my heart is. Which might surprise some people, I think. I think they might read some of those books and be like, wow, this is all heart. And, and there, I am able to put a lot of my own feelings into, like, I find ways to wedge something that's mine into every book that I write for pay. Um, but I, I also, it's tiring, you know? This industry is also just so full of kelpium and hopium and dreamy, gauzy visions of how things could be or should be, especially because we remember how much joy there was in reading as a kid. We remember the magic and we think to ourselves, this can't be tainted. This can't be a toxic environment because these things were so meaningful and so pure to me yeah, and so formative for me that when you get into the reality and you go back in the kitchen and, oh, there's a dead rat underneath the <laughs> french fries and it's just... It's not, it's, it's grim. It is grim. How do we focus on the importance of storytelling as not simply a means of commerce, not even solely as a matter of art, but getting back to what we were talking about, that shared human connection, that experience of what it means to be alive, so that it has the effect on you that Watership Down did and all of the other influential books of our youth. I go through periods where I feel really great about The Prophet's Wife because I know it is a fucking great book. It is not a good book. It is legit great literature. And just feeling so goddamn angry because I'm the only person on the planet who knows it. It really chaps my ass. But, you know, at least I know I wrote a great book. Yeah, I, I keep actually meaning to get to The Prophet's Wife, which, you know, I know doesn't help in the in the grand scheme of things but i am endlessly fascinated by joseph smith and the migration east and 
the way that his wife is portrayed and how certain declarations from God showed up just to tell her like, yo, back off a little bit. Let let Joseph do what he needs to do. The history about that whole founding and particularly Emma's history was so suppressed by the church for so long. There is a little scene in my novel, which you'll get to, where that shows you uh, how she dealt with those convenient revelations. And that was real. I didn't make that up. <laughs> Like, it was a real thing that happened. I won't spoil it. If you want to know, buy my book and read it. The ultimate spoiler alert. Read the book. I actually, so my fascination with The Church of Latter-day Saints is primarily from two books that I feel give a compelling history of, but I would be curious what within the community, how they're interpreted. The first one and the one that I've, well, I've probably listened to both of them an unhealthy amount of time, but would be Under the Banner of Heaven. Yeah. That is the most detailed version of from um, from New York to Salt Lake City. That's where I get most of my understanding. The other is, did you ever read Shot in the Heart by Michael Gilmore? Yes, yeah. Yeah, and, and so again, there, both of them rely on sort of the grimmer pioneer aspects of the history from Palmyra to Salt Lake City. And I yeah, how, how are those books perceived i'm sure that there's probably more about crack hour and under the banner of heaven than shot yeah. in the heart but how are those books perceived um they're both perceived by the church as uh i guess you can't really say heretical but as as um unfair because because cherry picking basically problem i have with that with that uh that apologetic sort of stance on those two particular books is that both of those books drew for their their uh, information source, at least up up until the point when the when the church split from No Man Knows My History by Fawn Brody, which is an exceptional work of of historical writing. It is so intensely and yeah. thoroughly cited. Mm -hmm. Like she spent years doing nothing but researching Joseph Smith's history so that she could write this biography of him. And she was a believing Mormon too the whole time. She was a very devout believer. She just wanted to know the truth about where the prophet of the church came from, she was getting this kind of whitewashed, you know, church-approved history, and she's like, okay, but there's got to be a little more to the story, right? So she dove into it, and um, and because she was a believer, she had access to church records, and, you know, she had a temple recommend at the time she was researching this and everything, she was able to get access to church records that, like, secular historians would not be able to get. Um, so she really, truly got the full history, but uh, unlike Richard Lyman Bushman, who wrote a, another biography of Joseph Smith around the same time called Rough Stone Rolling, he slanted that one to be very much in line with like contemporary church teachings. So it, it was a church-pleasing biography, it was meant to be. Whereas Brody's work was um, a human biography. She wanted to know who Joseph Smith was as a human man, not as this like elevated mythical figure that the church wanted to continue portraying him as. So the biography is very honest. It's very honest about what she found in church archives. It's very honest about um, how she researched how to put these puzzle pieces together and she documented it all so well. It's just, it's faultless. And the church was so mad because of how humanly she represented the prophet that they excommunicated her over it. So she was unmormoned because she 
loved her faith so much that she wanted to know the prophet. That that story just like the story of Von Brody's whole trajectory just like moves me so much. But because she put such intensity and such faith into researching it, I feel that any book that is derived from Von Brody's work is pretty damn accurate, even if the church says it's not. So Krakauer obviously He's a great researcher too. So his stuff that's like a portion of the book that is the church's history is also a very accurate representation. And it's been a while since I read Shot, Shot in the Heart. So I can't remember specifically like parts of it that I identified as being from Brody's work, but I do remember reading it and being like, ah, he's read No Man Knows My History. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that No Man Knows My History is, is what you're saying. And even Krakauer says like, this is the book if you're going to, to look through these things. For Shot in the Heart, one of the things that I remember most was that it was to get to the idea of blood atonement that if you shed someone's blood I'm gonna ask you I'm taking over I'm taking over okay. I'm gonna <laughs> ask you I'm gonna name some places and I'm just wondering if you've been there have okay. you been to Palmyra no I've not okay have you been to Nauvoo um yes I briefly passed through Nauvoo but I didn't do any like touristy stuff there I just went through it on a road trip <laughs> okay uh and then was it Springfield? Where was it in Missouri? It wasn't Springfield. Independence. Uh, um, I have not been to Independence, no. I'm assuming you've been to Salt Lake. Oh, yeah. I actually lived in Salt Lake for a while, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> Did you ever have dinner at, is it the Lion's Den? The Lion House? No. Um, I've, I've been through it as a tourist. I did not eat at the restaurant there, though. It's cool. It's an interesting house. Did you? Was it good? I did. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think, was it biscuits? There was something that my, my friend who I was with at the time was like, this is what this is known for. And Oh, yeah, the biscuits, and, yeah. And yeah, it was, it was interesting. I've been, because I got so fascinated with some of these things, because I have read both those books multiple times, I went to the, what was then the City Center Motel in Provo where Gary Gilmore killed somebody i went there i wrote about the whole experience for the huffington post i went i checked into a room the whole thing just was like terrible energy i wrote about that many many years ago i also went to the scene of the mountain meadow massacre oh wow and yeah and have you been there no i have not been there um that was kind of the type of so Back when I was really hanging around uh, the Mormon corridor, or Mordor as we like to call it in the ex-Mormon community, I was uh, still pretty much a believing Mormon at that time, and that was like not really cool to go. <laughs> like, probably shouldn't be seen there, because people are going to ask questions. <laughs> so. Well, so, so how is that perceived now? Uh... I think a lot of a lot of members of the church still try to deny that it happened or try to brush it off as not really being what it seemed, like justifying it in some ways or being like, well, it was a really scary time and there was a lot of stuff going on and everyone felt threatened and it was a big mistake. And like, yeah, you could say all those things are true, but also it was kind of a planned political massacre. <laughs> so so it's 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 sort of tiptoed around um yeah. by people who won't just like outright deny that it that it really happened that way so that's disappointing there's a lot of things that are disappointing about my culture of origin <laughs> anyway this was a plug for the prophet's wife um, <laughs> thank you spoiler alert <laughs> well uh, the mountain meadows massacre happens about uh six or seven years after the prophet's wife so it's not in the book <laughs> what do you miss about the community nothing <laughs> to be honest with you, nothing. I I liked some things about the town I grew up in, Rexburg, Idaho. It was just a cute, fun, pleasant little town. But it could have been a cute, fun, pleasant little town without Mormonism. I don't have 
I don't have any good memories of the religion. Like, you know, I, the only reason I stayed in it for as long as I did is because it was my family tradition. And like, my family has been Mormon since the founding of the church. Like literally as long as there have been Mormons, my ancestors were in that group. And I felt this kind of like, well, that's like who I am ancestrally, like I should stick with my roots. But then I was just like, I can't, I can't do this. Like there's too many fucked up things about, about these teachings. It, the Book of Mormon is obviously a work of fiction. Like, duh guys, come on. And it, I just, I was like, and plus I don't believe in the Abrahamic God either. Like, I don't care what version of Christianity is. I, I'm not on board with it because I don't believe that idea deserves to be worshiped. So yeah. I'm not doing well, any of that shit. <laughs> Peace out. It's like the spinoff, the spinoff, does, it doesn't matter that the spinoff doesn't make sense because the source material. Yeah, exactly. I was like, I was like, it's not like I can say, well, I still like Christianity, but Mormonism is not for me. I was, I was just like, I don't believe in any of this. I mean, there are a lot of things about Christ's teachings that any good person would believe in, yeah. obviously. I believe in that stuff. <laughs> But also, like, I don't believe that there was just, like, one messiah figure that came down to interpret the will of God. I don't think any human is capable of understanding the will of God. So, like, why would God send a messiah figure to try to communicate all these ineffable ideas to human minds? <laughs> Which goes back to the thing that I was talking about as far as what gets lost in translation. Exactly. The purity of God's thought gets tampered with in any attempt at translation yes. or even having a translator. Yes. So I do I do believe in a divine source, a consciousness, an overmind, you know, maybe one that as Terence McKenna posits has shaped humanity consciously and with purpose. Perhaps that I can I can say maybe to that. <laughs> like I'm not ruling it out, but I don't think any human interpretation of, of that idea is true and is worth following and is worth fighting wars for, killing people for, making policies yeah. for, none of that. That part trips me out, like yeah. the, the way that people are willing to kill and to die for it. And they don't even know what it is. They cannot know. They cannot know. Any concept someone offers you of the divine as an explanation for everything, as a is an answer to the question of who are we, where did we come from, what happens to us when we die, they do not know. It's a flawed concept by definition. If it comes from humanity to you, it is flawed. It is not the truth. Right. Or at least not right. all of the truth, not enough of the truth that you should hurt other people over it. Like, it's just the, uh, the arrogance of making war in the name of an idea or imposing policy, imposing laws on other people in the name of a religious idea, the arrogance of that. Who the fuck are you? You don't know God's mind. You can't. You fucking flee. Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Uh, I don't know. People just got to smoke more weed. <laughs> <laughs> to be 365 when the Lord came and took him back to heaven alive I saw I saw the light from heaven shining all around I saw the light come shining I saw that light come down
story from my troubled youth. <laughs> or maybe this is a story from my troubled early adulthood because it takes place right between the ages of 19 and 20. In fact, it takes place right between the 20th century and the 21st on New Year's Eve of 1999 and the morning of the first day of the year 2000. Good evening, you're looking live at Times Square in New York where a massive crowd has been gathered since early this morning waiting patiently for the stroke of midnight than six hours away, signaling the dawn of a new year, a new century, a new millennium in the United States. Like, it's funny now to look back on Y2K because we all sort of laugh about it now, right? It was, it was such a weird moment culturally because everyone was convinced that something huge was going to happen as soon as the calendar rolled over and we were in the year 2000 in a new century. Like, you either believed we were about to step into this incredible technological utopia where life would be drastically different and drastically better than it had ever been before, or everything was about to be destroyed by a fiery cataclysm of one kind or another. The experts that we're dealing with uh, indicate that it's going to hit hard and heavy for a while, maybe, be, maybe look like what some are calling a meltdown scenario for a week or two, and then it's going to level out more to brownout. On a scale of one to five, how bad the Y2K is going to be globally, five being the worst, I would say globally they're at a five. At least in the West, in the United States, where I, of course, was born and where I was living at the time, 
Either you belonged to a religion that bought into the concept of the end of days, ergo, you were convinced that the second coming of Christ was imminent, was going to plunge the world into absolute chaos and destruction, or you were well aware of the honestly very real and very serious threat posed by the Y2K bug, which you could not escape hearing about on like every type of media we had access to back then. It's 2 a.m. January 1st, year 2000. Power's out. It's pitch black. You need light. If you planned ahead, you'll have one of these. Just wind it up. You'll have light and communication. I'm sucking down the eggnog with 20 days to go. Practicing my yoga with 19 days to go. Nothing else to do today but worry about Y2K soaking in a since this Y2K computer bug is going to plunge our civilization into an era of complete and utter darkness, it makes sense to see the light at Motel 6 before it's too late. That way you can enjoy the apocalypse from your clean, comfortable room as the world outside crumbles and comes to an end. I don't know if any younger people are listening to this podcast now or will ever listen to this podcast. Probably not because podcasts are mostly like a Gen X millennial thing. But for those of you who weren't around to experience the fun for yourselves, back then in the last days of the 20th century, it was still a very new thing to all of us that like every practical aspect of our lives should rely on computers. We had advanced enough technologically that everything was controlled via computer, like communications, transport, every facet of every economy in every developed nation on the planet. Everything had only just become totally dependent on computer controls and computers were still new enough that humanity, well, we kinda fucked up. We both enjoy and are awestruck by the unbelievably rapid advancements in human ingenuity and technology. Yet, how fragile do we now find ourselves before the juggernaut of our own inventions? What actually happened was that a vast army of programmers went to work and basically recoded every computer system on the planet by hand. It was a massive feat of very important labor and these people were all heroes who worked very hard to get the bug patched up before Y2K actually arrived. And they were kind of invisible to us then. And the media was doing what the media does and like hyping up everyone's fears to keep them engaged. So the months and weeks leading up to New Year's Day January 1st, 2000, were, uh, tense, to say the least. Call now and order your ultimate Y2K survival kit. You get the wind-up and solar-powered flashlight radio, video diagnostic software, food samples and preparation guide, a $90 value, all for only $49.95. Some people were so utterly convinced that society was about to be plunged into abject chaos and violent destruction that they'd begun making emergency stashes of food and, like, other supplies long before Y2K, months or years in advance. And while, you know, it's always smart to have emergency supplies on hand, of course, I do that myself, people really took it to an incredible extreme back then. Uh, in fact, this was when the modern prepper movement really took off in the lead up to the year 2000. So I had just recently moved out on my own for the first time. I was living on my own as a newly minted adult. I was actually renting an apartment in the basement of my grandpa's house in Ferndale, Washington, which is, I don't know, not, not a place worth mentioning. It's Ferndale. <laughs> There's nothing else to say about it. But I was renting this mother-in-law apartment in my grandpa's house. And because I was poor as hell, as most 19 year olds are, I mostly lived that year by secretly skimming off my grandpa's Y2K stash. 
he had tons of food saved up in this other area of the basement, like this little side room. And I could access that weird stash room through this little door in my apartment. So I would sneak over into his stash like at night <laughs> when he was in bed, like some kind of rat person, I don't know. And I would just be like, oh, canned beef stew, that sounds good for dinner. Or like, oh, freezer quesadillas. He's got literally thousands of quesadillas from Costco. He'll never know if I take a few. So that was, that was how I survived when I was 19, like nibbling around the edges of my grandfather's Y2K stash. This was not my Mormon grandfather. This was my other one. He was still a Christian who believed the end was nigh for sure, but not the Mormon variety. But I had grown up in a Mormon family and I was still attending church kind of sporadically then. I still identified as Mormon. Um, I was not a good Mormon. I was a bad Mormon as we will soon find out. But in that religion, you cannot escape the concept of the end of all things. It permeates the whole church to a degree I think would disturb most other versions of Christianity. Mormonism is an apocalyptic flavor of Christianity. Its focus is not so much on the things Jesus taught about how to be a good person, but more on the idea that Jesus is coming back soon, very soon, like probably in the next 15 minutes. So you should literally expect everything and everyone you know and love to be destroyed in a sudden horrific cataclysm because that's how this supposedly loving God rolls, I guess. I spent my entire childhood absolutely terrified. I truly, this is not hyperbole. I literally don't have a single happy memory from my childhood. I'm sure I must have been happy and like a pretty normal kid sometimes, maybe even most of the time, but I don't remember any of that now. All I remember of my own earliest years is like a non-stop, low-grade anxiety that some supernatural force was about to descend from the sky and just start fucking everything up. Fire, floods, disease, nothing was safe. No one would be spared. I was not safe. Nothing would survive, not even me. But since I was a Mormon, you know, at least I'd get to go to heaven, yay. I don't really need to point out, do I, how fucked up it is to tell small children, babies, that everything around them is going to be destroyed any second now, right? Like, we all get that this is explicitly and undeniably child abuse. And as much as I joke now about how I'm okay with being raised with massive amounts of religious trauma because at least it turned me into a literary novelist, the truth is I really wish I'd had a normal childhood. I wish I'd been a kid who just got to look at the clouds in the sky and see puppies and kittens and fairy tale princess castles in those shapes instead of constantly looking at the sky and trying to interpret every cloud shape and flare of light as a possible sign that Christ's return had begun and the earth was about to be destroyed. But if I started praying in time, maybe God would spare me. So anyway, that was the energy that suffused my entire childhood. And now here I was just leaving childhood behind and even the secular world wouldn't shut the fuck up about imminent destruction and guaranteed calamity. <laughs> 1999 was a lot. It was a lot. Well, I had a boyfriend at the time, Jeff. The less said about him, the better, but unfortunately I'm gonna have to say a lot about him to make this story make sense. He was not a good person, just selfish, condescending. Like, here's the best illustration I can give of who he was at the time. I hope he has changed over the years. I sincerely hope, I think everyone can change. And I really, really hope that he uh, found a better way of being. <laughs> but uh, I actually dated Jeff twice. Ugh. 
This is embarrassing. I don't regret a lot of things in my life, but dating Jeff twice is at the top of the very short list of things I do regret. Because the first time we dated was our senior year of high school, and as prom was approaching, I could tell that he was very interested in another girl, who was 14, by the way, while Jeff and I were 18 and therefore legally adults. I mean, this kind of thing was not as frowned upon in the 90s as it should have been, but I digress. Anyway, I could tell he was really into this younger girl and prom was coming up and I said to him, look, I know you're into her. I can tell you want to break up with me. Let's just break up now because I would rather go to prom by myself and have fun with my friends than go with a guy who I know is just going to dump me anyway and you can just go with her and have the kind of prom you want to have. Well, he got all mad and he was like, I'm not planning to break up with you, God, you're being so dramatic. Whatever. Cut to prom day. All the girls are over at my friend Emily's house getting ready together. The boys all show up in their suits to pick us up. We're all going to go to dinner as one big group. You know, all of our parents were there so they could get pictures of their kids with their dates. Jeff was late. When he finally did show up, he was wearing shorts. That's all. That's it. No shirt, not even shoes. Shorts. It was so bad. It was just so disrespectful, like shitty of him. Like there's no excuse for treating someone this way, especially when I had already told him, hey, let's just like, let's part ways and just each of us can have the kind of prom we want to have. Like there was no reason for this. It was just him being a dick. In fact, I remember my friend Jake's mother looking out the window of Emily's house. She was the first person to see Jeff approaching. And I remember she just gasped and said, oh my God, because the way he was dressed or not dressed, I guess, it was just such an obvious slap in the face to me. Anyway, eventually Jeff was convinced to put on his stupid tux and we went to prom and our mutual friend Jake, bless him, told Jeff that he'd better dance with me, which Jeff did for exactly one song and then like ran off and ignored me. So I was like, fuck this. I went outside the building where the prom was being held and there was a steel drum band playing. So I took off my shoes and I just like danced with the steel drum band by myself. Just me and the band, me and my prom dress and my bare feet for like three hours all night long. And I had a blast. It was so fun. <laughs> Prom was great without Jeff. I wish that were the end of uh, the saga of Jeff, the worst boyfriend on earth. Sadly, it's not. That night after prom, all my friends and their dates got together and we were hanging out in the hot tub at my house. And we were all just, you know, sitting around having a great time. I was keeping some distance like physically between myself and Jeff by that point, cause fuck him. And right in the middle of some conversation I was having with my friend Colin, Jeff just like butted in and said to me in front of everyone, am I going to get to have sex with you tonight or not? Oh, record scratch. You could have heard a pin drop in that hot tub. It was mortifying. It was so gross and entitled. But I said to Jeff right in front of everyone, no, you will not have sex with me tonight or any other night because you're an asshole. And then he got up and left and the party went on. And uh, the day after prom, by the way, he broke up with me for the younger girl. Like, just like I said he was gonna do. I was like, what a fucking dick. Anyway, that's the kind of person I already knew Jeff was. And yet I dated him again the year after high school for reasons I still cannot fathom. It was just a mistake. But uh, unfortunately for me, I did have a boyfriend on New Year's Eve of 1999. That boyfriend was Jeff. And since it was supposed to be a big night, maybe the biggest night in all of humanity's history, maybe even the last night of humanity's history, Jeff called me up and asked if I wanted to come ring in the new year with him and his roommate. Now, I really liked Jeff's roommate. 
And his mom, actually, I still love his mother to this day. That might be why I dated him again, now that I think about it. Maybe I just really wanted to have Jeff's mom in my life. She's wonderful. But I drove down to the house Jeff rented with his roommate, and we made dinner, which we ate sitting on cushions on the floor because they didn't have any furniture, just like musical instruments everywhere. Jeff and his roommate Shimshai were both musicians. And I loved staying over at their place, not because of my boyfriend, but because every morning Shimshai would get up really early and he would practice his sitar in his bedroom. And I would lie there in Jeff's bed, which was of course a futon mattress placed directly on the floor. And I would listen to this sitar music just like gently coming in through the walls. That was what I liked about being there. And Shimshai had a pet tortoise named Spike who roamed freely around the house. And that was pretty fun too. So we ate dinner and fed vegetables to Spike and she crawled around on the shag carpeting and there were no smartphones back then. So I couldn't keep an eye on what was going on elsewhere in the world. But I wondered all through that night, like in the back of my head, whether the destruction of the world had already begun, like maybe in a different time zone where it had turned into the year 2000 already. My money was on the Y2K bug though. I did not think it was going to be the second coming that destroyed the world that night in defiance of what everyone else in my religion believed. They were all banking on God doing it, but to me, destroying the world at the stroke of midnight on January 1st, 2000, just didn't seem like the kind of thing God would do. Like God didn't strike me as the kind of guy who was into precision or predictability. So I was picturing all the other horrors the news had been telling us for months were bound to happen, like planes dropping out of skies and landing on people's homes, that kind of thing. But the neighborhood at least was quiet. I mean, aside from fireworks and people cheering, but nobody seemed to be screaming in terror. And at the stroke of midnight, Jeff brought a bottle of champagne out from somewhere and we all three worked at the cork and finally it popped off from the bottle and flew across the living room and hit one of the cymbals on Jeff's drum set. And the sound of the impact hissed and hung like very small in the air. Later that night, I guess it was two or three in the morning, I was lying in Jeff's bed beside him and out of nowhere, I don't remember why, I didn't even realize he was awake, he got all mad at me and said I was taking up too much space and he told me to get out of his bed. It was the early hours of the morning, and for all I knew at that point, money didn't even work anymore, so I couldn't just go find a hotel room, though I wanted to. And as I said before, there wasn't any furniture in this house except for the dining table and a couple of chairs. So I got up and I left Jeff's bedroom, and I stood in the hallway outside his room between his door and the door that led to the bedroom of his gentle, kind roommate, who in just a few more hours would wake up and start to play his sitar. I thought about going into Shimshai's room and waking him up and explaining that Jeff had kicked me out of his bed and asking if I could just sleep in there with him. But I thought that even though Shimshai was a very sweet and very generous and caring person, I didn't want anything to be misconstrued. So instead, I took a bunch of towels out of the bathroom closet and I lay down in front of the electric heater in the hallway because it was the warmest spot I could find. And I used one towel for a pillow and I covered myself with the others and I tried to go back to sleep. And sometime in the night, Spike the tortoise crawled over to me and rested her cool hard shell up against my back, trying to stay warm like I was. And I thought, well, we were both still alive, <laughs> Spike and me. And I wondered what that meant, like what it said about these apocalypses that had been promised to me so insistently all throughout my life. In the morning, sometime before the sitar started playing, Jeff got up to go to the bathroom and he stood over me where I lay curled up with a tortoise on the floor. And he said, what's with me waking up and not finding you next to me? And I looked up at him and I said, 
You told me to get out of your bed. And I knew then that something had ended. It wasn't as big as the world, but it was definitely an ending. all I got for you for episode one. Thank you so much for checking out this new endeavor. And if you enjoyed the show, please take a few minutes to subscribe to Future Saint on your favorite podcast app. If you use the Apple Podcasts app, please rate and review the show as well, since that will help me find more curious weirdos like yourself. Please also check out my friend Ben Leroy's work. You can find all of his stuff, including his socials at thebenleroy.com. And if you want more stuff from inside of my head, I hope you'll check out my novel, The Prophet's Wife, available via your favorite bookseller because it truly is the best thing I've ever made and I want it to have a fighting chance to find the people who will appreciate it. Sound collages were taken from the following YouTube channels, Sleepcore, Grimy Ghost, John Smith, and an interview with Alejandro Hodorowski, which was also found on YouTube. The musical interlude was Dry Bones by Bascom Lamar Lunsford and is in the public domain. Additional music includes Mercury and Synapse by Silverman Sound Studios. The outro music is Run in the Mardi Gras by Boko, used with permission of Big Crown Records. Find more information about the show, including my socials and ways to contact me at futuresaintpod.com. And until next time, do good magic and make good worlds. <laughs>